Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to The Rest is History, and to this, the return of the king of our Olympic podcast trilogy. Um, So Tolkien originally began The Lord of the Rings thinking it would be one short book, and it turned into Three Monsters. We decided to do a podcast on the ancient Olympics, and then we decided to do the modern Olympics, and that's turned into two podcasts um, just on the modern Olympics. It definitely won't be three, because I don't think we have enough material but we have tons of good stuff, don't we, Tom? The modern Olympics. What a weird... Well, I'm hoping that you do. And I, I'm less knowledgeable about this. That's all right. This is very can, much your patch. I can talk about uh, Daley Thompson for hours. Yeah, Daley Thompson, but also the Cold War, I guess. Which is yeah, which is the, the, the great backdrop to this. It is, it is, absolutely. So, in, in the previous one, we got to the Second World War. Yeah. And London was due to host the 1944 Games obvious reasons couldn't because London was busy with other things but in the wake of that um, London gets the games in 1948 yeah and it's blitzed it's bombed out it's austerity games London is in a worse condition in 1948 than it probably would have been in 1944 because austerity is bitten so deep kicked in yeah Um, so that the um, we talked in the in the first part about the problems that people had with the swimming people kind of contracting typhoid because it had been set in a lagoon or yeah. <laughs> getting caught up on the currents of rivers there is a swimming pool in the the london games um but it has a massive crack <laughs> due to bomb damage and so all the way through they have to keep topping it up that's a good story that's so that basically conforms to i mean american athletes must have been utterly unsurprised by that that must have I, I, absolutely conformed to their image of 1940s london as this sort of gray shabby Decaying, yes, which it was kind of nineteen forty eight. I mean, nineteen eighty four. It's absolutely it's, it's the city of, and the, the athletes stay in RAF camps, don't they? So yeah. it's it's so kind of in the shadow of the war. They even because everybody's on rationing, they get given the special rations that are given to miners to coal miners. Yes, um, so yeah, but generally. also Dominic, they they get given soap, but they're asked to bring their own towels. <laughs> bring your own. That's great. That's like where you know, people, when they go on holiday in Scandinavia, they often take their own sheets when they book these kind of cabins and chalets and stuff. There's this sort of spirit of, you know, you bring your own stuff and whatnot. Maybe the Olympics should be done on that principle. It would sort yeah. of remove some of the hubris. Yes, it Puncture would, some it? of the... Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. The Olympic village, um, you know, you should all be... <laughs> bring your own towel. So anyway, so so that was the uh, the London Olympics. And they've um, sort of lost touch at that point, haven't they? With the, I mean, for utterly understandable and, and indeed in perhaps admirable reasons, the London Olympics have broken with the 1936 pattern that we talked about in the last episode. So in the last episode, we talked about how two games, Los Angeles and Berlin, created the modern Olympics with the torch, with the, with the relay, carrying the torch, with the podiums, with the playing of anthems, with the sort of fascistic iconography. But London in 1948 doesn't really seem to have that, does it? It's all a bit sort of shabby and a bit sort of... Well, it's the actually, shabbiness becomes the point, doesn't it? Yeah, it is it's, the point. It's say, yeah, I mean, that's the whole point. Um, Even I think, in baggy I think trousers only, and stuff. I think the only infrastructure that is built is half a mile of pavement 
to get pedestrians from yeah somewhere to somewhere else. But I mean, for obvious and reasons, that's basically it. They had a, they had a much more arguably a much healthier attitude towards Olympic infrastructure than we do now because they had other things to spend money on, and but also because there's a revulsion from the excesses of '36. Because I think even at that point, the Berlin Games are beginning to assume this sort of incredibly diabolical role in the story of Hitler and his rise to power and appeasement and the world sort of blinding themselves um, to the realities of his regime. The the story from 1948 onwards, though, is increasingly extravagant infrastructure, TV and Cold War rivalry. So the Soviet Union, victor in the war, great power, yeah, um, does not come to London. Hasn't it? It, it dis- you know, ideologically, supposedly, it disapproves of this, you know, the Corinthian spirit. I mean, unsurprisingly, but 1952 at Helsinki, and Finland, of course, is in a shadowy way, yeah, kind of vaguely under the Soviet aegis. It's, That's what's it's fascinating kind of about it. It's, yeah. it's the Venn diagram. It's the center of the Venn diagram between the West and 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 the the Soviet bloc. Um, there, the, the Soviets do compete. And there's, there's a kind of wonderful contrast between the first female gold medal winner that America has, who's Margaret Abbott, that we talked about in the previous one. Yes, who who was, wins by accident, basically. Wins by accident, was studying um, art, uh, and there's kind of a glorious photo of her competing. She's got long white skirts, she's got a hat, um, you know, kind of gloriously Edwardian look. Um, the first um, woman to win a gold medal for the Soviet Union um, is uh, Nina Ramashkova, who wins the women's discus. And she is uh, an alumna of the physical training faculty of the Stavropol Pedagogical Institute. <laughs> and she very, very much looks like it. <laughs> you, you could not imagine her in a kind of hat. Uh, you know, yeah. much ivory hat looking like Helena Bonham Carter. She wouldn't go punting. <laughs> she would not go punting. She'd sink the punt, I think right. it's fair to say. <laughs> right. um, she's solid muscle. Yeah. Um, and I guess that, that that kind of establishes a template for the Soviet-American rivalry that will run right the way up till, I guess, you know, the boycotted Olympics of the 80s. Yeah, that's uh, right. Moscow and LA. And I think the Soviet Union, so the Soviet Union already had, for a few years, it had a history of sport as propaganda, sport as a um, as a vehicle for proclaiming, I, the key thing is proclaiming the modernity of the Soviet system. So they'd sent, for example, football teams to tour um, England and they had played, you know, what was perceived to be a more collective, more advanced, more progressive game. And I think this sort of... I mean, people talk about homo sovieticus, the sort of Soviet man. And the idea was that Soviet man, indeed Soviet woman, particularly Soviet woman as as it became, um, were... that they were almost kind of supermen and superwomen. That thanks to the appliance of Soviet science, they would outstrip all their western competitors and this became an obsession as we know for the sort of soviet and then of course the east german czechoslovakian hungarian so on authorities so this is a problem for the olympic committee isn't it that basically that kind of corinthian ideal doesn't play in a communist society and the soviets have absolutely no compunction about 
training people for four years yeah solely with the aim of getting them. i mean ironically they they're, they're kind of more like the very aristocratic figures in the ancient olympics they are and they're technically you know, amateurs aren't they i mean they're, they're always these eastern european and and, and and russian competitors are are technically amateurs they may they might be in the army or they might be a, you know the sort of commentators PE say, teachers yeah a, a policeman or, or something like this but of course the reality is they're spending all their time training and indeed being pumped with as as certainly by the 70s being pumped with chemicals um to sort of bend the rules and give them the give them the advantage so and how much is that being done a lot yeah lots that's, that's a mean, massive program that's a it's a particularly i mean east germany is the most famous example east germany by the 70s and 80s you know i think they, they have this colossal state-sponsored doping program and of course there are you know um all these horror stories about particularly east german women who are basically yeah, forced kind of growing beards and things. Yeah, who are forced to take all these treatments, whether they want to or not. Really, if you want to succeed, and for these Germans, is that be- be- because they are competing as, you know, one half of of course of, of what had been Germany? So they Absolutely. are targeting. They have and so to when, be. And so when the West Germans get the the games at Munich. Does, I guess that must kind of turbocharge it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think absolutely. And I think by the 80s, it had become almost, almost a parody of itself. I mean, I can remember as a boy watching the East German athletes and the sort of yeah. world weariness in the BBC commentators' tones. <laughs> when you know Another hammer is chucked five miles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> by somebody who looks like you know, the Incredible Hulk or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's easy yeah. to laugh about it, but there were real tragic yeah. stories kind of behind it. Because, of course, they, they didn't really have a choice. Because if you chose no. to opt out, of, if you were identified as talented and you chose to opt out of the system, the consequences for your family would could be very grave. You know, you would miss out, you'd move down the housing list, miss out on lots of perks of various kinds, be identified as sort of sceptics or enemies of the state. So the pressure on these women in particular was, was absolutely intense. And that's not just in East Germany. I mean, you read the stories about people like Nadia Komenec, for example, in Romania. I mean, Nadia Komenec was put under immense pressure um in the 70s and early 80s as a sort of because she was the absolute symbol of Ceausescu's regime um around the world and so she had very it was just kind of stifling um, but Ceausescu is i mean he's slightly he's slightly kind of at a remove isn't he so so the the, the Americans boycott Moscow because the, the Soviets have just invaded Afghanistan and then and then when the Soviets boycott Los Angeles, Ceausescu does go. Well, because so, Romania so is in a, in a slightly semi-detached... I mean, Romania is having its cake and eating it, not as much as Yugoslavia, but Romania is having its cake and eating it, so it's trying to get currency from the West. Um, it's sort of positioning itself. I mean, this is one of the reasons Ceausescu was decorated by the Queen. Remember, he comes to Buckingham Palace, I think, and is mm. given some sort of order. Yeah, he stays in, in the bedroom, doesn't he? Um, he Buckingham is Palace. because Romania is trying to position itself as the cuddly face of eastern european communism which obviously ironically it completely utterly wasn't um but yeah so ceausescu is exactly he's trying to steer this and so do, do you have a sense of how important it was to to both america and the soviet union yes yeah, each important. other in the metal tables it's absolutely massively important so the soviet union is very successful in the 50s and 60s um and, and there, are, there are there are confrontations starting right away. So the the, the classic early confrontation is in Melbourne in 1956. So December 1956. It's after the Suez Crisis, but it's also crucially after the um, Red Army's repression in um, Hungary. 
of the Hungarian uprising. And there's this landmark water polo match between Hungary and the USSR. So the Hungarians are very good at water polo. I mean, who would... I guess they've got their tradition of, of baths, haven't they, in Budapest? Maybe that explains <laughs> yes. why they're so, why they're Throwing so good at Throwing soap it. at each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the Hungarians, I think, are the reigning champions. And they've been training for ages. And they have this match... Um, it's sort of a quarterfinal or something. I can't remember exactly. So it's December '56. They have this match with the Russians. It's called the Blood in the Water match. That's how it's gone down because at the there was so much fighting at the end. One of the um, Hungarians, a guy called Irvin Zador, is is punched or elbowed. He he turns he he t- takes his eye off his Russian opponent for a second to ask the referee something, and the next thing he knows, his nose has been broken and there's blood pouring from his face the crowd which was mainly hungarian sort of hungarian australians they start shouting and a lot of them start spitting at the um at the at the soviet players um and it ends in this massive punch-up the hungarians win and who four wins nil. hungarian hungarians Hungary, win and they win the gold medal i think um but a lot of their players defect including the guy who was blooded Irvin Sadler. he ends up being a water polo coach in california bizarrely wow um so yeah so right there you have the absolute i mean that's one story that probably the other very famous the ice hockey the the ice hockey hockey match the miracle on ice late so when is that that's 1980 i think it is um so that's played okay so that's before the 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 americans have boycotted is it before the moscow summer games so yes i think it's it's at the beginning of 1980 if i remember right the winter olympics i mean this if i'm wrong listeners will correct me um and of course it's amateur so the people who are playing in the United States team are not professional ice hockey players. They're not the big stars from the NHL. The Soviets always win. Um, and February 1980. The producer was telling us February 1980. I, I feel very Thank proud you, of myself. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and the Soviets, yeah, they always win. And this time they don't. And it's in front of this incredibly partisan American crowd. And these amateurs, I think they're basically college kids. They win. And it's this incredible shock. Um, and actually, that moment is probably the moment where you see the, you know, you can trace the L- the spirit of the L.A. games four years later, that the turbocharged American patriotism from the Miracle on Ice in Lake Placid, because there you suddenly have... Because, of course, America doesn't get to play other countries. This is why one reason, I think, why the Olympics matter in America far more than they do in, let's say, Britain or European countries. Because Americans don't get to play other countries very often in international sport. Because, of course, their own sports, they're the only people that play them. Um, Dominic, you're not allowed to say that or you'll get in trouble. Well, You've already... other people ne- do play basketball. Fine, we've got the basketball of files who bombarded us with <laughs> yes. demented tweets last time. But <laughs> the American teams don't play international teams, do they? I mean, in basketball, very often. Very often. So the, that's why well, they the do Olympics. occasionally play Iran at football. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they do. Yes, they, they do. Um, anyway, so this is all. Yeah, no, I get that. Bit of a sort of I rambling. Get... Uh, so on no, the Cold War theme. So then you got. So then you got Moscow, nineteen eighty, and Moscow, nineteen eighty is where it becomes where the boycotts obviously start. And you know the weird thing about that, Tom, is um, this is Jimmy Carter's wheeze. You know, the the Russians have invaded Afghanistan. But it was, I mean, I'm not saying this as a sort of, I mean, I'm not a a sort of Cold War dove or anything. But I mean, it was a complete overreaction by Carter to boycott the Moscow Games, actually. Was it it for kind of um, 
to look strong. I think a lot of it was to look strong. He was perceived as weak. The election was coming against Ronald Reagan when Reagan was bound to. I mean, Afghanistan was already a Soviet client state. Um, so the sort of rhetoric around the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was pretty inflated, actually. And uh, and is that why, um, say, Britain went? Well, Thatcher, you, you Mrs. To... Thatcher... Um, put enormous pressure on the British athletes not to go but she there was a you know politics doesn't get involved with sport the British government couldn't legally prevent them from going they put it I mean the people there was enormous furor in the newspapers I mean I've written about this in my last most recent book in my series on Britain um, and it's absolutely fascinating going through but there was a real sense of debate actually so even in very sort of anti-communist newspapers the Times let's say or the Daily Express the, the letters pages, the editorial columns, they would often give views for and against and people would be... You know, the sports journalists in particular were adamant that it would be really unfair on the athletes not to go. And the athletes themselves generally wanted to go. Um, I think Daley Thompson was asked about it, said he didn't give a damn about <laughs> that was his. They were his words. He was great. He said, I, I don't give a Daley damn Thompson. about the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. I'm going to get to win gold. Um <laughs> At one point, Douglas Hurd, who was Minister of State at the Foreign Office, he goes for a meeting with Peter Coe, Sebastian Coe's trainer, and tries to persuade him that Seb shouldn't go to Moscow. And Peter Coe's like, you know, we're going. Um, the people who don't go, amusingly and entertainingly, the people who, who don't go, who are the people who, the precisely the people who you would assume would be the most right wing because they have gone to private schools. So the equestrians don't go. Um, so no dressage there's no dressage and the yacht the yachting fraternity (laughs) (laughs) refused to go to moscow but everybody else goes and obviously um i mean british fortunes by the way britain had performed abysmally in the olympics the 70s and we sort of clambered a little bit off the canvas because that's the um steve steve uh avet and and exactly They beat yeah. each other at each other's specialism. Yeah. Daley Thompson wins gold and the decathlon, and Alan Wells um, wins gold in the 100 metres. So um, so for Britain, this is a great sort of hurrah, hurrah, because the West Germans aren't there, the Americans and the, the Americans Canadians yeah. and the Japanese aren't there. And, um, but when they all come home, they don't get decorated initially. Mrs. Thatcher does not recommend them four medals and but actually co ends up a tory mp right he does and, he does um william uh, haig's judo instructor <laughs> he well, well when william haig goes down the log flume wearing his baseball cap that says haig on it uh, as aficionados of william haig will, will know that this disastrous photo opportunity after he became <laughs> tory leader in the 1990s he goes down the log flume sebastian co is just behind him in the log yeah. flume, really it's never pointed out, is it? Every no. anyway, but listen, we people must get remember into, we... Sebastian Coe for all the wrong things. They remember him for the Olympic golds, but not for the log flume, and it's not right. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but just just sticking to the uh, the Cold War rather yeah. than to the career of William Hague, they both are equally important. Yeah. Um, the the Soviets' response to the American yeah ridiculous um, boycott, they, they then boycott LA. No, but no, but but their initial plan is to wipe the floor with the Americans. So they start pumping in more drugs, more training. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, that's right, that's right, their plan. Right. Tom's all over this, as you can tell. I'm all over <laughs> it. Well, this is, this is your period. I don't know. I mean, if the Spartans, I'll be fine. Um, but but it's it's a late boycott. Is it? I, think, I, I haven't I haven't followed the anyway. Listen, this is quality podcast. <laughs> so then the American. Well, what happens is Moscow is a terrible games. Moscow is very drab. Um, the security is, is suffocating. 
A lot of the city has been evacuated, so basically children have been taken out of Moscow. The foreign press corps basically write home and say, this is awful. Because a lot of them, don't forget, there's a lot of people who, you know, people don't go to Moscow by and large in the 1960s and 70s. So all these people who normally report on sport, so they spend their time at Crystal Palace watching kind of slightly obscure athletics events. They go to Moscow and they're writing copy that's appearing in Western newspapers saying, God, this place is awful. You know, it's, it's <laughs> this sort of this image that we have of the third Rome, you know, the capital of this superpower. That so in the that, 70s, everybody thinks represents modernity. So, so the idea that we have, you, you know, that I remember growing up with that Moscow is kind of queues and shabbiness. Yeah. Does that come from... A lot the of it, journalists. I think, a lot of oh, it, right, I think, does come from 1980 because these are people who are. There'd always been a sense of sort of it being a forbidding sort of dark citadel, but the sort of sense of just but how awful shabby. it is. Yeah, a lot of that's that I just think does come from the 1980 game. Certainly in the British papers, um, there's and the sense that it's oh actually because so much in the 70s of the talk about the Cold War had been that the Russians were winning. Because, of course, America's been humiliated in Vietnam. They've been Watergate. The Russians are penetrating Africa and so on. And then people go to the Moscow games. And they're like, oh, God, this is, this is actually terrible. So that's interesting because that, that in which case that's an example of um, totalitarian Olympics gone not wrong. working. Gone yeah. wrong. Yeah, exactly right. I think that's exactly okay. right. I don't think anyone comes home from Moscow and says oh, the Soviets are just as powerful as I had imagined they were. I think they come home with completely the opposite expression. And that, of course, nicely tees up Los Angeles, which is just the ultimate expression of kind of Reagan Americanism. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So immense corporate... You know, that's Stars and stripes. Corporate sponsorship take turned up to 11. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's happening in California and Sunshine. The American news media goes completely berserk and basically doesn't mention the fact that anybody else is participating in the games at all, which really shocks a lot of even sympathetic kind of British and German and so on observers because they can't believe how how ultra patriotic the Americans are about their eighty four games. It's Carl Lewis's games, and yeah. it's also the games at which um, Daley Thompson, great hero of mine, perhaps slightly disgraces himself by baiting Carl Lewis about the possibility that Carl Lewis is gay. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do vaguely. So he, that, he yeah. walks around with a T-shirt on saying, um, is the world's second best athlete gay? And yes, when people ask him that. about it at the press conference, he says, oh, in England, gay means happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do vaguely remember. But Carl Lewis, Carl Lewis, I mean, he was photographed wearing stilettos, wasn't he? Was he? Oh, I don't know. Have you, where did you hear that from? Yeah. Daley Thompson? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think we should. I think we should have. Um, we should have a break here. Okay. I'm just going to check that to make sure that I haven't. I think it'd be um, great if this. I mean, if this podcast <laughs> is to be cancelled, I think being cancelled because you've slandered yeah. Carl Lewis. Well, it's not slandered about his about his, his shoe choices. No, if he wants to wear stilettos, that's fine. Um, but I just want to make sure that's right. So let's yeah. have a break. The, I will go and check that. The then we'll Daily come back. Thompson think, of historical podcasting, Tom Holland. <laughs> and I think that, that when we come back, we should look at um, uh, TV. Well, we've got TV, but we've also got some very dark chapters we haven't talked about, okay. Mexico and Munich in particular. Okay, so, so let's look at that when we come back. Okay, All right. good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, Tom Holland, I believe you have something you want to say to the lawyers? (laughs) I do. Okay, so yes, um, that subliminal memory that was facing around in my mind of of Carl Lewis in Stilettos is right. So it's not a false memory. It was part of um, an advertising campaign by the Italian tyre company Pirelli, and I'm reading this off uh, the internet. Um, It was taken by American celebrity photographer Annie Leibovitz, and it showed him wearing a pair of red stiletto heels. Okay. So I was right. Interesting. And I guess he may be making play with the... Dave Maybe. Thompson. No, I don't, I don't think Carl I mean, Lewis is that... I don't think he's... I don't is he think that he's, knowing? I'm not sure he's that ironic. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I remember, do you remember the uh, Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis? That was Titanic when I was at that, school. I mean, everybody... So that was soul, wasn't it? That was soul. Everybody had a preference, either Lewis or Johnson. I remember Johnson winning and being delighted because I wanted him to win. And then... But... And then, yeah, the... And that's probably, it's up there with so, Mar- so we should say for people who don't know that, I mean, Ben Johnson was absolutely up to his eyeballs in Yeah, which I, and- I think, frankly, I'm not defending Ben Johnson. All of them. But were. was true pretty generally um, for a lot of athletes. Not all of them, maybe, but for a lot of athletes in the 70s and in the 80s. Well, 90s, actually. Um, is, and, is, this, is this legally... Well, I didn't. I said not all of them. So if you're listening okay. to this and you're an Olympic athlete, <laughs> One, I don't mean in you. Seventies, eighties, and I definitely don't mean you. Please don't sue us. I mean the other competitors. I mean yes. um, the ones who who did. Yeah, them. but obviously at that point, by the the Ben Johnson scandal was the biggest scandal probably in the biggest doping scandal in Olympic history, and you know well, it has meant that ever apart since. Apart from Thomas Hicks, in the the strictness. Yeah, being given the strychnine and the egg whites and the brandy. Yes. Well, um, 
Yeah, that's and the, the asterisks in the Olympic Games taking that's that at the time, magic potion. Yeah. But but I mean, apart from I mean, the Ben Johnson scandal is a, a sort of supposedly a dark chapter in the history of the Olympics. But but I mean, it isn't really compared with some of the dark chapters. Brilliant so, segue. So yeah, I th- brilliantly I, done. I, I that was thought, that was superb. I'm glad you like that. I was I, like dressage, even as I was doing it. <laughs> See, had I been the a, judges would give you ten points yeah, for that. Had I been a competitor in 1980, I wouldn't have had the chance to do that in Moscow. Yeah, um, but I could have. You know, that was magnificent. You've podiumed with that. that yeah, one. So, thank you. So, oh, okay, so shocking. The, so, so the dark moments. So I think there's three. There are three games in a row, pretty much that are that are bad. The least bad of them is the last one, which is Montreal, and that's bad just for ludicrous overspending. So in that one, Montreal in '76, Canadian listeners. I know we have some Canadian listeners, and they will definitely remember this. The cost overrun by seven hundred and twenty percent. And Montreal went a billion dollars into debt, and they didn't pay off the debt for the stadium until 2006. I mean, just mind-boggling. Um, and you know about the, the mayor, Jean Drapeau? Yes, the mayor. So Who lots- said, a, a city can no more lose money on the Olympics than a man can have a baby. <laughs> right, well, and couldn't say that he, now. He also, um, he, he, bas- he basically compared the, uh, the Olympic Stadium in Montreal to the Acropolis. But it still doesn't work. The Olympic Stadium in Montreal has never worked. It has this fancy retracting roof that they've had to repair. Well, so I put this out. On, I, I, I put this out on Twitter, and uh, Canadian journalist James Many replied: "If memory serves, the roof of the Acropolis was blown to bits after the Ottomans used it as an ammunition dump. I think it was actually the Venetians, wasn't it? Um, but anyway, the point is, is is accurate. Our roof fell in because of snow. Yeah, so well, it was incredibly crooked. The main construction union had links to organised crime." And basically, it's bankrupted, effectively bankrupted in Montreal. And the city took okay. decades and decades to recover. So that's bad. So that's bad, but not as bad as, obviously, the two previous games. So Mexico, 1968. Um, on the e- Mexico is a troubled country in the late 60s. Huge student protests. Um, a lot of police repression. And just before the games start, um, the Mexican government basically shoots and kills between... That probably between three and four hundred um, student protesters in the center of Mexico City, and the people who are most responsible for doing this are a special battalion called the Olympia Battalion of the Mexican Security Forces, who wear special. They're in plain clothes. They wear white gloves so that the other police won't fire on them, and they set up machine guns and basically machine gun the crowds. That's and, not a good. That's not good preparation. And there's a lot of talk about you know can the games go ahead under these circumstances and the IOC president who's an American called Avery Brundage Brundage was a terrible man he was the man who had led who had insisted that the Americans not boycott the Berlin games in 1936 he had a history mm-hmm. of anti-semitism and, and sort of racist remarks and stuff Brundage is asked did you see this and he says uh, no I was at the ballet um, so the Mexican games go ahead and then, of course, the Mexican. So this game... is the con- so, so, so this guy Brundage. That's the context for the really famous image from the Mexican Games. The Black Power salute. The Black Power salute. On the yeah, podium. Tommy Smith and John Carlos. So um, that again is a is a terrible story. So they do the Black Power salute on the, and of course they do it in the context. Martin Luther King um, yeah. and Robert Kennedy assassinated in 1968 in America. America is in the Vietnam War. It is racked by protests. Um, the civil you know rights movement. Um, the optimism is beginning to leak away. There have been race riots. Uh, it, it's all very troubled. And, and actually, against that background, merely doing a, a salute and a glove 
during the playing of your anthem doesn't really seem like such an century. Uh, so Tommy Smith wins. It's 200 metres, right? I think and it's 200 metres. There are three of them on John the John Carlos line. comes third and there's an Australian who comes second Pe- and he Peter, joins in. Peter, well, he he wears a badge. Peter Norman. He wears, okay. It's, a, it's actually a, a, a nice story. He is the one who suggests to them about the glove, that they have wear a glove each because they tell him they want to do this. It's actually a story that reflects really well on all three of them. They say to him, we, we, we feel really strongly about this. We want to do this protest and they say to him do you believe in god and he says yes because he's a member of the salvation army his salvation army background and 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 they say well that's why we want to do it and he says oh i'll support you you know and um they are basically banned from the olympics forever by avery brundage american head of the ioc and peter norman there's a lot of controversy about this in australia whether it's for sporting reasons or for other reasons but he's not and he's doesn't get into the Australian team for the next Olympics. A lot of people have always thought that was because he was basically blacklisted because he had shown support for these two right. guys. So that's a very, I mean, that is the most famous image by far, one of the most famous images in Olympic history, but it's yeah. one from which the Olympic movement emerges with no Terribly. credit whatsoever, I would say. Yeah, there's kind of sense of slight sense of, well, I mean, slight, I mean, considerable sense of moral bankruptcy yeah. hanging over the Olympics throughout the 70s and 80s. Well, I'm, I'm, Munich is a yeah, shocking... Okay, so it, is a, and this is the worst, yeah. It's a, it's a terrible story, really. So to for listeners, most listeners will know this story, but for those who don't, um, September the 5th in Munich in West Germany. Um, it's Germany's first chance to host the Olympics after 1936. So it matters enormously to the Germans um, that they present this sort of new face of Germany to the world. And um, eight members of the Palestinian Black September organization, they invade the Olympic Village. They take uh, 11 Israeli athletes and officials hostage. Right at the beginning, they kill two of them, um, a wrestling coach and a wrestler. Uh, They kill and and, and torture them really horribly. I mean, it's a terrible story. they, and, and so this is in the context of the, you know, the anti-Semitism that had stained the thirty-six games. Yeah, as well. So it, it could. So from the perspective of the Olympics, it could not be a worse story, right? I mean, because it's a reminder. You can't help think back to nineteen thirty-six. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the, the sort of adage about politics and sport don't mix is is comprehensively demolished by this by mm-hmm. this incident. The terrorists then go with the hostages to. Um, a military airport and there the Germans launch this disastrous botched operation to rescue the hostages which basically ends up with everybody being killed all the hostages are killed and um, I think all the hostage takers and this is the some of them get away because then yes of course not all the hostage takers they exactly. get hunted down right by the Israel Israel has this Operation Wrath of God as it's called Mossad there's a brilliant yeah. book about this by a guy called I think it's called Ronan Bergman called Rise and Kill first or rise and strike first or something which i reviewed a few years ago really riveting read and of course steven spielberg's film munich um is all about this about the hunt for the for the people who planned it and and so on um and again avery brundage is there uh and he says you know the politics and sport can't mix the games will go on so in other words he's perfectly happy to have the games in hitler's um berlin and he thinks the games should continue despite the fact that one of the teams has just seen um, 11 of its members murdered. Um, and you sort of think, well, if it's not going to stop it then or postpone it or do something, would you ever stop it? Um, and I guess his answer would have been no, he never would. So, yeah, that's a... that that's a, 
I, I so that, think. That, go on, Tom. That, that 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 I mean that taint. Berlin Olympics, Munich, the greed, yeah, the the Cold War rivalries. I mean, I think it is a kind of permanent shadow over any idea that the Olympics are a festival of. I I completely agree. So when you you mentioned in the last podcast, the first one we did on this on the modern Olympics about David Goldblatt's book. And I was looking back at um, David Goldback's book and the art- he wrote an article just before the current Olympics, the Tokyo Olympics, in which he basically argues, he says, you know, the Olympics should, should stop. They should be wound up. And he gives a series of facts, actually, which are, you know, we've seen in our, li- in, in our recent sort of lifetimes, um, Los Angeles, Seoul, Barcelona. I mean, Barcelona is probably the one great success story because it really raised Barcelona's reputation massive yeah the city because the city is the star of that right yeah and and And, also catalonia i think a big boost to catalan nationalism but also i mean it's the one that after the the end of the cold war so the old soviet american rivalry is is slightly put to bed i think that's right and i think it's probably the least tainted um yeah uh so then you have atlanta 1996 i mean awful an awful games it's a pipe bomb attack but also it should never have been given to atlanta everybody agrees that um the organization was poor it was a complete sellout to kind of Coca-Cola and you know, it should have been Athens. Um should because it's centenary. Yeah. I think the um Sydney games are pretty good. Um But then Athens Athens is I mean two thousand. I mean it's, it's a financial, financial disaster, yeah, isn't just it? Just before the financial crisis as well. I mean you think what happened to Greece just a few years yeah. later, that they've blown yeah. all this money on the games. It's kind of it, lent and car- I mean kind of like the, the, the IOC are like dealers. They're like the kind of mafia encouraging people to get into gambling debts. They're absolutely. So that then they can take over their sports shop or something. I mean, I mean that's you, what it felt like with Athens. Yeah, agreed. You know, that, that, that Greece got horribly stiffed, basically. I mean, the Beijing Games are obviously an advert for the Chinese regime. No doubt. No one would sort of dispute that. The London Games... A magnificent we, monument to Blairism. Well, we loved... I mean, everybody in Britain loved the London Games because we did really well, because we made a... We like the Queen. Of, Organized helicopter. Daniel Craig was in it, um, but it was very expensive, and it left. It didn't increase participation in sport, which everybody claimed it would, and it left London with. I'm not going to say the Olympic Park is a white elephant, but it is a bit of a white elephant. Um, you know, the, there's. But good news for West Ham, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's not as much of a white elephant as the Montreal. <laughs> yeah, if you're a hammer, though they hate their new stadium. They they can't stand that. <laughs> Everyone's new unhappy. Yeah. Uh, and then what was the last one? Rio. I mean, Rio, terrible story. You know, they didn't be... Uh, just reading here from David Goldblatt's article, Rio did not build a single community sporting facility on the back of these Olympic Games. And they moved, they forced out 60,000 people to move out of their homes to make way for Olympic infrastructure. I mean, that's kind of... I, mean, I think that's pretty indefensible, actually. Yeah. Um, so these... I mean, the the stats are extraordinary. Goldblatt says no modern games, with the exception of Barcelona, has ever raised a host city's rate of economic growth, level of skills and employment, tourist income or productivity. It's a complete myth that they raise the level of sporting participation in the country. Actually, lots of people watch the Olympics on TV, but they don't then emulate the I mean, that's the sort of claim that these people, you know, Olympians. I mean, I admire these athletes tremendously who've dedicated their lives to the pursuit of glory and all the rest of it. But. The, the idea that they inspire others 
is dubious at best. I mean, they may inspire kid, some kid in the ghetto they, dreaming they, of dreaming of dressage. That's always well, that's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, who didn't grow up in a slum dreaming of synchronized swimming? Um, <laughs> that's yeah. always the claim, isn't it? But um, I think the truth of it is a lot has always been much darker. And um, and we shouldn't kid ourselves. I think it has right from the beginning because you think about all the you know the human zoos, yeah, and all that stuff. It's kind yeah. of monstrous, really. Um, so this is all very bleak, isn't it? And if it's not bleak enough, I'll tell you this: his, there's an extraordinary story about a, a Jap- I came across a Japanese marathon runner called Kokichi Subuyara. I'm sorry if I've pronounced that wrong. To Japanese oh, is this the is this the one in? So he's a Tokyo. Helsinki or Stockholm? It's at Tokyo, I think it is sixty four. Okay. Um, but it might be the one you're thinking of. So he comes third in the marathon and he'd hoped to win. And he, he ends up walking. You know, he's shattered. I mean, God, he's been going for 26 miles. It's fair enough. He basically stumbles across the line in front of his home crowd and he's very disappointed. And he says, I have committed an, ex- an inexcusable blunder in front of the Japanese people. I have to make amends by running and hearing the anthem in our next Olympics. So for the next three years, this poor guy trains like a demon. Um, to get into the next Olympics when he can redeem, as he sees it, the shame of having finished third in front of his home crowd. He has a back injury just before the um, Olympics, so he can't go. So do you know what he does? I mean, you can probably guess. He leaves the note. Yeah, he kills himself. Yeah, okay, so, so, yeah, that is a depressant. That is a downer. But there's a slightly more inspiring one, which I because I think it would be... It would be remiss to dwell just on the dark side because okay. clearly Fair there is yep. kind of incredible inspiration. Yeah, um, pe- people watch it because they find it moving and inspiring. I, to be honest, I'm a complete so, hypocrite because when we win, when the, <laughs> well, when the commentator I, says Dominic, you know, Dominic, when the Dominic, commentator you, says your 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 columns for the Daily Mail, I know, are there I know, I know, as I know, evidence I know, for I your. When the commentator says, oh, this lad from Hunstanton, his family watching back home, I mean, I'm in kind of floods of tears. It's, it's, it's I'm a pitiful figure. Okay, so this anecdote I'm about to tell is going to be a terrible anecdote because I can't really remember it. Okay, I, and I was I was told it years ago by I think David Owen, great sports journalist coverage, not the, the SDP, and somebody, not the SDP, no, 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 no <laughs> the sports editor of the FT. Okay, and uh, somebody mentioned it also on Twitter a few couple of days ago, but it's in one of the Scandinavian Olympics, and I'm guessing it's it's either Stockholm. I think it's Stockholm. Um, there's a marathon. There's a Japanese runner. He realizes midway through that he's not going to win a medal. And he's so ashamed that he stops the race and he just goes home without telling anyone. So nobody knows where he's gone. So he just vanishes. Yeah. And he's gone back to Tokyo. And yeah. And after the war, the um, the Swedes kind of discover that this has happened and they invite him back to Sweden to complete the course and he does it and everyone turns out in Stockholm to cheer him over the finish line that's a lovely story so that is a good story that's a bit it? like the Derek you know the Derek Redmond story I mean people will uh, pe- people who know about athletics will definitely know this story so there was a, a very accomplished British runner at the turn beginning of the 1990s called Derek Redmond but he was played by injuries and he got himself fit I think just for Barcelona and he he was in the final and he had a really, really, really good expectation of a medal. And he, you've, I'm sure you've, you'll have seen it, Tom. He he goes, but his hamstring goes halfway round, and he slows to a crawl, or well, a crawl. I mean, it's a stagger. And um, a man runs onto the field. Yeah. Um, 
a sort of older quite sort of large black man and the the um the organizers are trying to sort of hold him back but it turns out this man is his dad and his dad helps him across the line and it's this incredibly sort of even the even the olympic sort of the official olympic website makes mention of this you know cuz obviously he comes in behind everybody else but his dad is determined that he his son will finish and he basically helps him so actually you know it's it's very like the story of Ferenike that we talked about in the first of our our trilogy the mother who helps her son yeah to 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 win the boxing or the wrestling i can't remember which it is and she's not wearing any underwear and they recognize she's not wearing any underwear and the penalty is officially that she'd be chucked off a cliff yeah that didn't happen to the redmond the ioc decide that she they'll spare her well very similar so that's a nice moving moment that's a very nice moment on which to end and one last note on which to end tom to return to the um patriotic spirit which we began these two podcasts on uh, the modern olympics do you know there's only one country that has won a gold medal in every single summer games i'll give you one guess which one is it the united kingdom of great britain and northern ireland it is it is well and before we, before we became the united kingdom of great britain and northern ireland of course we won gold in the only cricket match yeah paris 1900 and we win the uh, so we remain the gold the gold medal winners in cricket and i think that's a splendid note yeah. we win the college olympics end. every year so i mean <laughs> <laughs> they're the yeah. real games yeah yeah <laughs> the Cotswold olympics really it's it's a victory for them yeah, exactly so well done them right thanks very much for that listening note, uh, uh we've got sparta coming up haven't we and lots of we stuff have. about um uh, uh the berlin war and, and nuclear weapons yeah, berlin, yeah. and tons yeah. of interesting stuff so, so see you soon see you next time bye bye Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.